Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Godestines crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Today we have back with us Dave Peterson. Welcome back, Dave. Thank you. We are looking at the gospel reading for the commemoration of the presentation of the Augsburg Confession. It comes from Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 to 33. I'll read that in the English Standard Version. Jesus said, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Okay, so before we get into the context, um, maybe just a little bit about the presentation of the Augsburg Confession historically, and then why should we celebrate it? Why should we commemorate it? I mean, it's probably very well-known history among us, but of course, the Augsburg Confessions presented in Augsburg on June 25th, 1530. So it falls on a Sunday, the June 25th. It is the most, it is the most foundational confessional doc- document. Um, you know, it's the uh, in the 1520s, Charles can't really deal with the religious problems in Europe because he's dealing with the Turks. So 1521's the Diet at Worms. There's a big problem. He just lets it go. Mm-hmm. By 1530, things are kind of settled down. So he wants an answer. And the Lutherans, you know, give this great confession. Luther himself can't be there, but this is written by Luther and Melanchthon and some others. And it just becomes this very foundational document because it should have been easily accepted by the Roman church. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it does kind of show the wickedness of the church at that time and their, you know, just refusal to listen to what's what's obviously clear yeah. and true and no deviation, yeah. right? I mean, I mean it's, it's a very authentic document. Yeah, and especially in light of all of the kind of other things that or other kind of schools of thought that they allowed within the Roman church at the time. Yeah. I mean, it's kind well, of like, always- it's, it's kind of like, that's what Luther really wanted. Like, look, just let us be a school of thought the way that the Augustinians are, or, um, you know, the Benedictines. Why don't, why don't you just let us be, we're not really saying anything contrary. We'd be happy to submit to this kind of authority. So long as you understand that this is not from God. I I think that's a little overly soft. Uh, I mean, uh, Luther is issuing anathemas, um, and there is you know, and I couldn't track this down. Somebody, I said I said this I think on this podcast before, and I still I don't know where I got this. Um, I thought that the offer was actually made to Luther explicitly that he would be tolerated if he dropped the anathemas. Huh? I don't. Could say, I don't recall that. He, he, yeah, I, th- I maybe I made that up. I, I sure thought I read that in a book somewhere that, you know, that this offer was made. Look, you can teach whatever you want in the positive sense, but you can't condemn things. And even the Augsburg Confession does condemn or insist at least upon some things, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it wants to allow communion under both kinds. Uh, it, it will not, uh, it doesn't ban celibacy in the priesthood, but it wants to allow a priest to be married. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, there's a few other things that really, you know, those seven articles that are controverted in a sense. Mm-hmm. I think the Roman Church at the time should have been able to accept it because it really is obvious. But I mean, it, it wasn't as though. So anyway, I don't think it's quite fair. Well, they didn't accept that, you know, the first eighteen. Well, they pretended to somewhat. <laughs> I mean, not in the computation. Yeah, you know, I mean, no, that's right. 
I mean, they took They're issue being with. They, I mean, they took yeah. issue with original sin. They took issue with. They I took know. issue with a bunch of stuff. Yeah. So, but it is demonstrated that that what's being taught in these, especially in the first twenty-one, really is consistent. I mean, it's it's found easily found in patristic writings. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, anyway, that that's so. So that's the con. I mean, that's the historical reality. And then the significance of the of the document is that it it does become this foundational thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not enough. We, I think we have to say, as much as we love it, it, to say that it's enough would be, you know, it'd be like saying the Apostles' Creed is enough. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, what do you mean by that? Yeah, it's it's enough in the sense that it's accurate and it's true. It's not enough to actually declare fellowship over because other issues have come up and need to be need to be clarified, right? Mm-hmm. So the ELCA accepts the Augsburg Confession, right, um, and the Small Catechism, I think, but mm-hmm. then nothing else. I mean, I, by so accept, you, I mean they don't subscribe to them. So do you think, in a sense, that mm-hmm. we're kind of in need of creating? Uh, I, I don't mean to say, add to the Book of Concord, but creating a confession in our day that address, addresses the issues of our day that would help um, clarify the, the the various stances of Christianity in our day. Like, do we need to have something that we all kind of sign on to with regard to marriage and family and human sexuality and things like that? Yes, Okay. But we're not capable of it. I mean, we've, and, you know, and, and Luther, confessional Lutherans in America have been saying that we need a document like that for 40 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you mean you we're know, not Robert capable Royce of it? We don't have the, the intellectual fortitude to do it or horsepower, or we, we I think, don't have enough people to sign on to it. Yeah, we I think probably three things. We okay. probably don't have the <clears throat> probably don't have the horsepower, right? Mm-hmm. Just we don't have I mean God for whatever reason hasn't given us Luthers and Melanchthons in this day. Not not at that level. Um and we don't have the numbers, right, to actually be able to I mean even our rank and file clergy we just aren't going to be able to discern these things and subdue our egos enough to actually sign these things. And then finally, we just don't have the courage um, to actually split and confess and renounce error Mm -hmm. because we have these institutions we're trying to keep. And I'm I'm including myself in this. I'm not, I mean, I think this is just kind of the the reality in which we currently live. But the other side of that, so that's the negative side Oh, this is more negative, but different. The, um, I mean, we also just don't live in a world where it would be kind of arrogant, you know, like for the Missouri Synod. In fact, this was the charge against the brief statement, right? For the Missouri Synod to try to come up with a confession, you know, for kind of worldwide Lutheranism. They could mm-hmm. do it in Augsburg in a sense because Lutheranism hadn't spread that far. Um, and, you know, the idea that we could have an actual council to form a creed Right. Obvious. I mean, you know, Christendom is so, yeah. so divided. It just feels like, how do we do these things at this point? But someone has to take a lead in it, right? I mean, someone has to say, look, we obviously need this. And yeah. so whether or not it seems uh, brash or prideful, I mean, again, like you say, we just have to set aside whether or not, who cares if it's coming from the Missouri Synod? Who cares yeah. if it's coming from the wells, um, yeah. or if or if it's coming from you know some African denomination that is more you know more Lutheran than we are right now? I I don't know of anyone yeah. in particular, but th- this kind of thing, like they keep saying, you know, African denominations are going to be the 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 ones who eventually evangelize the rest of the West. I, I don't know if that's right. going to be true or not, but they are. They definitely seem, at least within communions like Anglicanism uh, and even the Methodists, they are paving that way. I agree. I think maybe if there was some way we could anonymize, if we could remove it from personalities and schools and, um, you know, it, but we, I mean, Robert Price couldn't do it. Mm. We need a statement on scripture, 
right? The confessions don't have a statement on inerrancy. Mm-hmm. You know, we need a statement really about worship. Yeah. Uh, we need lots of things that, I mean, you know, beyond the sexual deviancy of the, of the current, you know, media and so forth. Yeah. There's just all sorts of issues, I think. So, I don't in know. any case, I, this I is... Think, I kind of think, like, even though we are at Gottesdienst aren't loved by everyone, I think Gottesdienst is pretty is well-suited for this, to bring other people on to do it, and at least get the conversation going. I mean, whether or not they take it out completely, but this is something that the Gottesdienst crowd could push, for sure. And maybe we've got a decent layman who can actually write it all down. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I I would be for this that. This could be a call for vo- a call for volunteers. Yeah. The Godestines crowd. That's the listeners, right? Yeah. We we need we need to get this started. Yeah. We need to probably start with a list of articles. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think this would be a good this would be a good endeavor for us to pick up. It would. It would it would be a lightning rod, which would be unusual for Godestines. But <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> And it would bring charges of arrogance against Godestines, which would also be unusual. Yeah, I know. We never get that. Um. So, <laughs> it's it, yeah, really, it has been talked about for so long. I, I think you're right. At some point, somebody maybe just has to do it. Yes. They just have to try it. I don't know that Robert actually did ever try it. I don't know either. You know, he certainly tried. And I mean, not him alone, but, you know, he was the... I mean, he was the front man, and he yeah. was the personality that gathered. And I mean, Gottesdienst is very much the legacy of – we see ourselves as a legacy of Robert Preuss. Mm-hmm. Gottesdienst does not come out of the St. James Society. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a whole different uh, legacy. We come but, out of the confessional movement from Fort Wayne. Yeah. And, and you know, the, probably the closest to him starting that was that two-volume set on post-Reformational theology. Uh, yes. To at least, at least begin to follow the strains of thought to say, you know, this is this is this was the spirit of the age in these days, and this is how they answered, almost as a as a way to pave the way forward to say, okay, now how are we going to respond in our day? Right, and we have the confessional Lutheran dogmatic series that mm-hmm. you know is also part of his legacy that. It, that's more. That's an expansion of Peeper. It's a right. different thing than a confession, but it's related. Yeah. We also have. Um, no, I forgot what I was going to say. The other thing that comes. Well, anyway, there are some things that have been done, even mm-hmm. though they weren't put forth. You know, brief statement. Yeah. Um, the CTCR, frankly, uh, has a sense of trying to do that. Yeah. They put out statements, and then those statements are supposed to be somehow endorsed by the church, right, right. in convention, which very, very few of those statements really are. Yeah. Almost always, they're just kind of commended to study. Yeah, and but and those would be places you, you could start, yeah. though. And, and those are, I don't know. I mean, that falls victim to personnel as policy. Yeah, it does. Um, so like. I know this is a, a bit of field, but so who would be your team if you could choose it? <laughs> uh, ben Mays, Jack Kilcrease. Um, mm. This is just off the top of my head. Matthew Carver. Uh, these guys are very well versed, I think, in the historical things and would bring different perspectives. Two of them are lay people. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Who else? Koontz. Yeah, Kuntz would be good too. Uh, oh, I mean, lots of people would be good, but right. Mm-hmm. Could these four guys sit in a room together and not? That would be a question. Yeah. Um, you probably, you know, politically and just recognizing, you, you probably would need to do a sort of CTCR kind of thing and and try to represent different groups. Yeah. Um, you'd need somebody from the St. Louis Seminary. Yeah. I think maybe Joel Olowski. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm related to him by marriage, but I mean, he's very articulate. Again, he's got a depth of knowledge of, of the creeds and the way the creeds were developed. So that mm-hmm. would be useful. Yeah. I think Rick Serena, he's know, on CTCR. To... Oh, yeah. He's yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's a good, that'd be good. There you go. This is our draft off the top of our heads. I think like Carl Beckwith too. You know, he's, yes. he's coming to the Fort Wayne Seminary really sharp, bright guy. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, you know, you might have to try to look at like different sort of expertise, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, do we have an expert on sexual things? Maybe that's Gifford Grobean. Yeah. Uh, he did, you know, he has that. So there could be others that I'm just not thinking of, but yeah, maybe Jeff Gibbs. Um, I don't know. Yeah. There'd be some possibilities. Yeah. And this you would de- be another You would definitely have it. to get over some of the, the, the past arguments, wouldn't you? <laughs> yes. I mean, you're gonna, if you're going to really do this seriously, you're going to have to really put down ego and you're going to have to find statements that are, I hate to say compromises, but you know, you're going to have to, look, this thing can't be filled with Nagel language, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It's going to have to be, lang- it can't be just our favorite clever ways of saying, and I don't mean that to, I'm not trying to, you know, reduce that, but yeah. it, it can't be Peterson language or Swirtle language either. I mean, yeah. it's got to be kind of in some ways almost generic committee language that's not poetic, that's not beautiful in a sense. It's got to be right? dogmatic. It's got to be dogmatic. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's going to have to re- it's going to have to be the sort of thing that um, a lot of us would end up saying, well, I would say more. Yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, but but you'd have to kind of find the point where you'd say, well, I don't want to say any less. Yeah. And and what is kind of what can we say about inerrancy even that that really is actually true mm-hmm. and universal that that might allow for one open question you know yeah um and I, I, inerrancy is maybe not a good example but but you know what I mean because yeah. the the creeds and the confessions don't answer every possible question and they also mm-hmm. don't get caught up really in a lot of exegesis yeah which is what we all love the most yeah. And that would be hard to resist. Yeah. I'd like to see like Corey Moss on this or, mm-hmm. and like even Adam Francisco. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. There so what wh- state should, yeah. So we should put this together. Uh, I'll put a bug in Fritz's ear and uh, say, get going. Um, there you go. That'll work. Yeah, I'm sure it will. <laughs> Uh, so, okay. So that's kind of the history. So why, why commemorate this on a Sunday and setting aside the, the ordinary? Well, it's one of the most significant things that's happened in the history of the church, really. And I don't think it's, it's not less of a significant event seriously than, you know, Trinity Sunday and kind of celebrating the Athanasian Creed. The Augsburg Confession is one of those most pivotal moments in history where we very much see God's grace in preserving doctrine, mm-hmm. promulgating doctrine, and you know preserving us in the faith. So it's a, it's an important event, and so it's kind of a Reformation festival in some sense in the yeah. summer, but it's kind of nice that it can be a little bit more focused on the actual doctrine of the Reformation rather than the sort of personality of Luther and the 95 Theses and the kind of triumphal, you know, thing that sort of comes in with that. And it is particularly a Lutheran festival as opposed to the Reformation because there are so many uh, who kind of pile on with Reformation. You know, I'm sure you can look at social media throughout the United States on October 31st and you'll have all kinds of Protestant denominations celebrating Reformation Day, but they're not going to celebrate the commemoration of the Augsburg Confession. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I, that's I mean, a it good is point. distinctly our commemoration. It is. Yeah. I mean, you've got, I just was looking at the website 1517 because something came up and, uh, right, 1517, the organization has Baptists mm-hmm. and ELCA. And they they can rally around fifteen seventeen, mm-hmm. uh, you know. I mean, as a year because it's the ninety five theses. Yeah, they can't that same you know group of writers, whatever insight and so much they might bring, they can't rally around the formula of Concord, right? right. Mark Mottis and Steve Paulson, they reject that. The Apology too. Yeah, they're they're not you know. So there is uh and and really, I think the Reformation. Typically for us, right? That I mean, we do it on October thirty first because it's October thirty first, fifteen seventeen, and that is a Protestant. Like I mean, fifteen seventeen, the organization is a Protestant organization. It's not yeah. a 
confessional Lutheran organization. Right. Uh, so you're right. This is a this is a pointedly confessional uh, Lutheran celebration that that is focused on the actual doctrine that ultimately makes us Lutheran. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's get into the text. Yes. Let's do. All right. So what's <laughs> the context of this text? Ah, the context of this text is the sending of the twelve. So this is the really the beginning, the first time they're sent out, um, and so uh, it's immediately after Jesus is teaching. He describes that he has compassion for the sheep, and he says, "The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few." Mm-hmm. And then, boom, he names the twelve apostles, and he sent or the uh, twelve apostles are named by Matthew, and then Jesus gives this long speech. Um, to explain what they're to do and what's going to happen to them. Mm-hmm. And we're just getting one little section of it. Uh, there's different ways of trying to look at the kind of rhetoric of it and the structure of the speech itself. Mm-hmm. But I think Gibbs makes a pretty good case to just divide it in half, that the first half is very specific to the apostles themselves and that historical situation, mm-hmm. um, largely because it's very explicit in the beginning that they're only sent to Israel and not to the Gentiles and that they're going to come before kings and that kind of stuff. And then the part in the speech right after our part is going to be that Jesus doesn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Mm -hmm. And he who receives you receives me. And if you give a cup of water to the least of the little of these, you give it to me. So you got all that stuff. Oh, so I'm sorry, the division, the first half is really to the apostles very explicitly. We can apply it to ourselves, of course, but there are peculiarities that aren't literally true for us in the same way, like we should tell Gentiles about Jesus. Um, and then in the second half, it's much more generic, and it's very much anticipating the mission to the world and, and much more obviously applicable to anybody that talks about Jesus, whether ordained or lay. Um, so that's the that's the kind of broad context or the immediate context. And then right after uh, this big speech and the sending of the apostles, we're told that Jesus follows them, which I think is really interesting. Mm-hmm. So he sends them out without coat, without sword, all that stuff, and out as you know, sheep into the midst of wolves, and then out they go. And then it says he goes along behind them and teaches, which uh, I think is beautiful and a great reminder that right, we're not really going alone yeah. ever. They aren't either. And then it's the. It's the question of John the Baptist from prison. So, so John's decrease. Yeah. So is this, increase. in a sense, that they're showing, demonstrating the relationship of the twelve to John the Baptist, not just to Jesus? Yeah, because J- John's fading away. The oldest yeah. is the last. But they're, of the prophets, they're the ones right? who are preparing the way. Yeah. 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 Okay. So it's a pretty rich context. I mean, there's a lot going on here. It's a significant moment in the gos- in the in Matthew's gospel itself, mm-hmm. and it's a significant kind of our verses are a significant moment within the speech, right? Yeah. And and our verses are really about not being afraid. So oh, we didn't. So you, it starts in verse uh, twenty six, right? Yeah. Um, and I did what? Wait. Oh, yeah. So the it, you sort of need the you almost need to start in twenty four, um, though that's not where the lection. But Evan Scammon doesn't have this in his. He's probably disapproving of us right now for observing this feast. Mm-hmm. But uh, so he doesn't. It's not in the field test lectionary. But verse twenty four: A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Then 26, therefore, because of that, do not fear them, that is, those who hate Jesus and call him a demon or the Lord of demons mm-hmm. or the Lord of the dung heap or Lord of the flies, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and then, uh, so you have these three fear things that are in our text, right? Mm-hmm. To don't fear those who call Jesus Beelzebub, don't fear those who can kill only the body, and then just don't fear those uh, of the world that are rejecting your message. And mm-hmm. instead, there's a fourth fear, fear God, and this isn't the normal Lutheran way of speaking, fear God who can kill the soul, Yeah, right? Not just the body. So we're to, so this is not just filial fear. 
it's not just filial fear. Yeah. This is also to to fear the wrath of God and do nothing against His commandments. That He that that, uh, that there is there you're going to fear something. There's also I think in this. I was thinking about this as I was preparing. Um, how you know if you talk to a soldier that's come through war and been courageous, without exception, he will tell you he was afraid. Right, that courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the mastery of fear, or right, living with fear and doing what needs to be done anyway, not allowing fear to rule you and to stop you yeah. and the like. Right, no soldier goes to war and then says, "Yeah, I wasn't afraid." But but we pull this all the flipping time when we're talking spiritually. Oh, I'm not afraid to die. <laughs> My members tell me that all the time. I'm not afraid to die. Yeah, you are. You should be, or you're just you're just reckless, and 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 uh, you don't recognize that actually dying is dangerous, because it is this sort of moment where eternity is decided, right? And you ought to come upon that moment with some trepidation, and you ought to recognize that going through this violence to the body for which the body was not created, yeah. right? The separation of body and soul is an inhuman violence. I mean, makes a, it so to, to, to approach that and not recognize that it's fraught with danger and temptation because it's painful, because it's unnatural, because the devil's right there, right? That is a, a foolishness mm-hmm. that could actually lead you to do dumb things. So, so do you think this failure to admit to fear is linked to a failure to be able to identify what our enemies really are? Hmm. So like, if you don't Maybe. think you actually have enemies, you know, so like what's going on, yeah. it seems like in the church is that uh, uh, particularly when it takes its stance against things of the world is that we're told that we have to treat everyone as a brother, you know, or that like every single person around the world is our neighbor. Um, and while there's a truth to that, it's, there, there's always a particularity to the to those. Um, is it a failure to actually say that there are enemies of Christians, of God, and of His Church? Well, I have never thought of that before, but I think you're right, and I think maybe it's also not just a a, a failure to recognize human enemies, but I wonder also if it's actually a comfort with our own sins. Mm, yeah, exactly. Maybe it's. Related to this, like, I can watch R-rated movies because I'm mature. Right. Right. I'm sophisticated enough that I can look at naked women and not lust. But, I mean, that's obviously, I mean, that when you say, I love, this is, the, I call this the Broughton rule, right? When say you say this out loud, it's so obvious. But people say that all the time, you know, um, and we just, we just poo-poo any kind of you know, call to actually resist sin or mm-hmm. separate ourselves from temptation. Tempestuous, is that the right word? Tempting, tempting, not tempestuous, tempting situations, right? Yeah. Because, well, we can, I can handle it, right? <laughs> and I wonder if that's actually the reason we're not afraid is of it is because we're actually so comfortable with it and we love it. Yeah. So we don't really see these as our enemies. So, like, we don't see them as our enemies. Yeah. So, so if we're going to say these things out loud, we have to say out loud and with some specificity what our enemies are. I mean, and not yeah. just like the devil, the world, and our sinful nature. They hear this so often they, that it right. just kind of rolls off their back like water off the back of a duck. So how do we speak of the enemies of Christians, the enemies of the church, and the enemies of God in a, in a particular manner so that it becomes clear what the battle is over, like that the battle is really over them? And their right. allegiance. Yes. I think that the the enemy that they recognize to some degree is pain. Mm. They, they know that they want to avoid pain and they want to seek pleasure. And they will tell you, I'm not afraid of death, but you know, I want it to be easy. I don't want it to hurt. I mm. am afraid of pain. Because I will say to them, well, when the car skids on the ice in the winter, there's that split second of panic, yeah. right? You feel that, you know. We all do. And they'll say, well, I'm not, that's not because I'm afraid of death. I'm afraid it might hurt. Mm. I don't think that's really true. But I, I do think we could, in terms of specificity, is say, 
you know, death is typically, painful. I mean, in our circles at this point, painful yeah. and it precedes. I think there's actually a, you know, it's, we, we are being led as sheep to the slaughter by God, herded by God, the shepherd into this because he is stripping away our idols Mm-hmm. And old age is a very torturous, humiliating reality that is happening over time. The martyrs were often tortured before they're actually killed. It's not mm-hmm. usually just, you know, burn incense to Caesar. They say, no, chop off his head. You know, they try to convince him through torture, yeah. right? And not everybody, of course, goes through that. And this this whole section is talking about, definitely talking about martyrdom. Yeah. Well, so I do you want because I'm getting old. Do you want to talk about then not just physical pain but mental anguish? Well, right, I think that so what happens in old age if you're if God allows you to get old, you know, you're lose you lose dignity, you lose the capacity of your body, you lose you lose pleasure, right? And you live with pain and you also lose loved ones mm-hmm. even. Right? Yeah. And not necessarily always just through death, but the longer you live, the more chances there are for your friends and your loved ones to betray you. Yeah. I mean, there's just this reality of, so I think, you know, time itself is stripping us of these things. And these are things that, that we fear. Now, there's the more active side as well, mm-hmm. which, but I think in terms of specificity is to recognize, are you afraid of your beloved not loving you? Mm. Well, you, you should be. I mean, it's a legitimate fear. You shouldn't let it rule you, but you you know you should you should recognize that this is a threat. Are you afraid of those who can kill the body? You shouldn't be in the sense of letting them drive your actions. But when Jesus says, "Don't be afraid of them," he's actually acknowledging that there's something to be afraid of. Yeah, right. It isn't an absolute. Oh no, I have absolutely no fear of this. No, you should have fear of it, but you should fear God above all else, and you should act despite your fear. So, so to kind of maybe walk them into it, uh, what are what things are you afraid of? Well, these things you will face. So mm-hmm. don't be don't be brash and say I'm not afraid of dying. Right? Recognize I am afraid of losing my faith because I cave because I can't take the I think I can't take the pain or I desire pleasure mm-hmm. so much, and and that can be all of the things: mental anguish emotional isolation, right? Physical mm-hmm. pain, lack of whatever. But then you've got, I mean, this text is talking not just about that. I mean, it's also talking about the actual hatred of the world because of our confession. Yeah, And I think we got to bring it there too. And especially, this is really pointed because it's not, so, it's not in our text, but it's just beyond it. There's all this language about, you know, fathers handing over their children, children renouncing their parents, right? <laughs> this um, is this and, is and our day. <laughs> this is our day, exactly. Um, you know, and the pressure to accept what your children learned in college, uh, and you sent them to college. So or, or preschool anyway, these days. Or preschool, no kidding. Right. That that uh, you know, if you don't if you don't toe the line on there, you're going to be canceled. You're going to be cut off. You're going to be anathemized. And the pressure to, that's, I think the number one, the number one threat or the number one pain of my congregation in terms of its pervasiveness, um, you know, individuals might be different, but the thing that is most common is adult children who have renounced the faith and taken up some perversion and are torturing their parents with it mm-hmm. in one way or another. And the parents trying to figure out what to do and how to do it and you know how to love the sinner but hate the sin and mm-hmm. how to not lose these children and yet be faithful, right? Tell the truth and not condone their behavior, but somehow keep them. And yeah. there's a, the temptation to compromise is almost unspeakable. Yeah. Okay, so it, do you, is that what you bring up? Is is this the is this the 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 place where we must stand today? In I not think it fearing is those who can kill, not fearing those who can kill, not fearing those who can take away your grandchildren, not fearing those who can make your family not the happy place you wish it was, not fearing yeah. those who can, you know, because in reality, you. the one who can kill both body and soul can actually give it all back to you the way he did to Job. Yeah. 
That's right. You're worth, and, and, and he counts every hair on your head. It's not like he's not paying attention. <laughs> right. So somewhere I, I was reading that this is, where was this? Something that the temptation of the Christian is always to think that he's been forsaken by God when things go bad, right? And I mean, I think there is something just primal in us that does do that. And so this is going on and we feel like we have to take over again, Eve in the garden, right? Well, the Bible doesn't say anything about a homosexual daughter that wants to bring home her lover for Christmas, whether or not they can sleep in our house together and we should pretend like they're married, right? right? The Bible doesn't address that. So, you know, I have to make up my own rules and my own way of, you know, and I I think- But it does tell us to teach the truth, to speak the truth, It does. I mean, it's hard, but I think some of, and I don't, and, you know, I'm not, Listen, we're all trying to muddle through this and and figure out how to be faithful and yet be compassionate. So I get it. But there is this sense in which I don't want to look at the Bible and see what the Bible says, really. I'd rather handle this on my own because if God is paying attention, I'm afraid of what he's going to tell me to do. <laughs> and And then at the same time, this sort of regret that, oh, he's not paying attention, therefore but there's also kind of, it's an excuse kind of, right? Well, it's not my fault. He didn't tell us what to do. Yeah. So this yeah, requires it's, it's wisdom, doesn't it? It's not just, he doesn't give us yeah. um, uh, a formula. No, there's no right, formula. So, but he does, so, he does say whoever confesses me mm-hmm. before men. Yeah. Right. But that, right, what does that mean? Yeah. So Okay. So if this requires godly wisdom, um, where is that attained? In other words, where do we point them to to um, bolster our people to be able to respond in the day that these things happen and 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 speak about it in a way to say that these will happen it maybe at night they have might to. not look the same way for every single person but this st- right. this kind of pain is coming this kind of pain is coming there's no avoiding it your yeah. your families will suffer in some way and have some strife and some difficulty and in trying to navigate this and there will be a temptation to make peace at any cost so mm. so you need to prepare for this how do you prepare for this you have to be reading the bible a mm. lot and thinking about the bible a lot and i think maybe the thing that's most lacking talking about the Bible a lot, talking about God's word, his law, his goodness, his order, along with, of course, his mercy, his gospel, his promises, his steadfastness. But we have to actually be talking about these things and talking about, right, casuistry situations, how these apply, what what goes on, and not just sort of reading and not thinking so mm-hmm. I was thinking about this and just recently with evangelism and some other things, but it's funny, the difference between taking an academic course and say, you know, going to Bible class on Sunday morning. One of the big differences is if you take a, an academic course, you have to read the material outside of class. You have to do work outside of class, significant yeah. amount of work. Yeah. And then you have to be able to demonstrate it, right? There's yeah. a test, there's a term paper, there's and and it's going to be that is going to be evaluated. Whereas and I mean Bible class, it's nothing against Bible class, but in Bible class, right? You just show up, you sit there, you haven't read the passages of the Bible that are going to be studied that morning. You're going to read them with the teacher and he's going to explain them and then you're going to walk away. And that's great, and that can be fun, and that can be edifying for sure, but it doesn't sink in as deeply, right? You mm-hmm. haven't mastered the material in the same way, whereas you've, if you took an academic course, you would have been much more directly engaged. And there's always, in an academic course, this necessity to articulate what you've learned. Yeah. And I think that maybe we need to do, right, the Bible student, the, catech- the catechumen, which is all of us, needs to maybe do more talking mm-hmm. um, and applying of this and sort of wrestling with this. Now, I don't know where and how we do that, except that family devotions would be the main place. I don't mean, I'm not trying to tell our listener, lay listeners to talk more in Bible class. Um, I'm not telling them that. <laughs> I'm <laughs> telling them, though, to talk about Bible class at their and the sermon at the kitchen t- table. 
Yeah. Right. Especially on Sundays, especially on Sundays, we should be talking with our children about what happened that morning. Talk about the readings, talk about the sermon, talk about the hymns, talk about Bible class, talk about, you know, the lessons to be learned and how this is to be applied, evaluate the sermon. I mean, that's sort of actually learning to talk. And the children really need to be asked questions and an- and answer them, right? Mm, yeah. So did you, would you suggest too, like after a Bible class or something like that, would you suggest after church and Bible class, or perhaps even within the sermon to say, you know, here's kind of your homework. Here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to pray and ask God to put you in a situation where you might be able to talk about these things and then keep your eyes open for it. Would you go as far as that? I mean, I haven't, but I I, I think it's a good idea. I'd be willing to. Mm -hmm. I do think we need to learn you know, we definitely need to learn to be opening ourselves up to, for lack of a better term, spiritual conversations. Yeah. We need to be opening ourselves up to opportunities to confess, to bear witness to the hope that is in us. Mm -hmm. And right. I mean, I'm notoriously bad at this in that, right. I go to the grocery store and I just want to be left alone. I do not want people talking to me. I don't want the clerk telling me about her child born out of wedlock and how cute he is and whatever. I just, I don't want, I don't want to talk to people, but there's opportunities there for sure. And I need to get over it. Right. We need to actually engage people, mm-hmm. confess, right. Witness, evangelize. Yeah. yeah. And you know, the, the clerk that wants to tell you about her child is, you know, and the baby daddy and stuff, there's an opportunity there to, to respond in a way that's appropriate. Yeah. Instead and that of takes me that takes practice, grouching. doesn't it? It does it take practice. practice. Um yeah. and, and I know that I've told my folks periodically, um, and you know, tried to offer tips on on how to engage, you know, and said, you know, try to do this in um in a in a situation that is lower stakes than you might think. Like hmm. people uh, so try, try to engage in those kind of conversations with people who you know are already friendly to this, who are already, and who will overlook your errors and your dis- discussion techniques. So like you said, the family, that's a low stakes in terms of if you mess up, you have lots and lots of opportunities to correct those yeah, things great- and, and, and so forth um, so that you're prepared because if it's not practiced, if you don't, if you've never done it, you have said, you know, you don't rise to the occasion. You typically fall to your lowest level of competency or your lowest right. level of training. training. Well, if you've never yeah. trained in right. low stakes environments, in a higher stake, you're not going to, to you might not even enter the fray. Uh, absolutely. I think that's, that's very, that's very helpful. Yeah. I like that to actually practice in a low stake environment, but a real environment, right? This isn't a, you know, learning how to sell vacuum cleaners and the students, you know, practicing their pitches on one another. Right. I, I mean, you could, I mean, this is real conversations about real things and, and real texts. And yes, it's, look, we get better at preaching by preaching. Right. We get better at teaching by teaching. We get yeah. better at all of these skills writing by writing so this is a, a similar thing yeah we are called to confess before the world in hostile environments and we should expect there to be hostility and failures and even consequences sometimes mm-hmm. but we also expect and hope that the word of god does not return void yeah okay so, so it's not all doomsday yeah so what do you, so what do you preach on i mean do you have a section on the history, it almost seems like you have to. Does it? I, yeah, it does. I mean, maybe not I'd you. Like not you, to. you are in a unique spot, right? You have. I am. Uh, you but have. Even so, there's people that don't, you know, newer members or didn't grow up Lutheran. Sure. I probably still have to do it. I probably will. Yeah. I would feel constrained to in my. Every, I don't feel like I need to really go through it in on Reformation Day. 
you know, the history yeah, right. of stuff. But for something like this, I think I I would feel compelled to talk about what even the Augsburg Confession is. I think you're right. I mean, you could, I, of course, you could use the Augsburg Confession, and it's going to be obviously very tempting to use Article Four of the mm-hmm. Augsburg Confession. Um, it might be worthwhile going after and then quoting maybe, you know, the latter articles or one of them, say on the celibacy of priests or communion under one kind, mm-hmm. um, to show that there is actually something being confessed against and some risk being taken. Mm-hmm. As much as we love Article Four, it's fairly ironic. Yeah. Um, you know, to to show the connection between the latter articles and Article Four can be useful. Yeah. But yeah, the history does matter. The fact that they were risking a lot, right? That Luther was outlawed and his life was in fact in danger at this time. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he survived it, but now do you yeah, and then you make a the, big deal of who actually presented it? I th- I mean, I don't know I don't know what you mean by big I mean the, and big deal. Oh. <laughs> I I mean, do you highlight the fact that it wasn't the trained clergy who presented this oh. to Emperor the Charles V. It was the princes, it was the layman. Yeah, it was I mean Melanchthon actually right. He writes right, it, it's but the princes that but, but the, princes, the, the princes read it, right? Yeah. No, that's right. Yeah. I hadn't thought I mean I hadn't even really been thinking about that, but uh that's of course absolutely true. This is a this is their document. Mm-hmm. Um they don't write it on their own, but they do read it carefully and they take it seriously and they do embrace it. And, you know, that's a actually that's that's a beautiful point. Mm-hmm. And they are taking some risks as well, but they do have some resources. Yeah, yeah, uh, which is interesting. Yeah, I mean, without them, the whole thing falls apart, right? I mean, if yeah, if you don't have if any of them, are, you don't get a reformation. You're dead, right? There's no <laughs> reformation. I mean, there's there's Luther has no resources to defend himself, right, against an army. Uh, I mean, he could insult them, but that would only last so long. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> yeah, that's a great, that's a, that, <laughs> he is good at that. He he does have a flair for insults. Yeah, he does. No, that's a, I think that's a, a beautiful point. And I'm, yeah, I, absolutely. That's, that's a perfect time to make this. And then yeah. look, these people made this confession. They weren't theologians, but they loved theology just like you do. Mm-hmm. And they were willing to, to stand up and to defend this and to yeah. take their own risks and so to you, protect those. So you yeah. would put that in terms of an encouragement, not a shaming. Yeah, I think yeah, so. definitely. And I mean, you've got the passage here explicitly, right? I mean, that's why this is chosen for this day. Whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. And then the very negative reality, right? But whoever denies me before men. right? So, I mean, that's the passage, I think, that most applies. Um you know, the fear thing, though, certainly is related, that you don't fear those who can kill the body. And also the promise. Not, I mean, it's the same promise in some sense, that, not, that Christ will confess us before the Father, but also that he knows every hair on our head. We're worth more than sparrows. And, you know, earlier in this, um, that, that it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't prepare for that hour, but ultimately, all proclamations of the gospel are, in some sense, words of the Holy Spirit, right? Mm-hmm. That, that it doesn't mean that it's spontaneously going to come to you without preparation, but it does mean that it's not, its effectiveness is not based upon your own rhetorical skills mm-hmm. or vast sums of knowledge. Yeah. We're going to leave this in God's hands. We know it's going to fail sometimes. I mean that's pr- prophesied. Yeah. We know it's going to be there's going to be some hostility, but we also know the history of of Israel and of the New Testament church and yeah. we see how God blesses his word and it does not return void, but in fact and I mean the reformation itself is a marvelous pent- I love having read on the altar for for reformation. Yeah. I love tying the reformation to Pentecost and I think it's 100% appropriate. Yeah. Um, you know, somebody suggested years ago that we should put violet up. It should be a day of repentance that, you know, we're in sorrow over the church dividing. Well, look, I mean, I'm not in sorrow over the church dividing from the unbelieving. And, you know, <laughs> that's is right. This is 
The truth is God works through his word. He did a marvelous, miraculous thing at the Reformation. Could he do it again? Of course he could. And should we proceed in faith with confidence in his word? Yes. We shouldn't be, you know, we should be wise in this and recognize there's a threat and there's a danger, but we should also move through forward with a confidence that he does bless his word. And even if they do kill us, it'll be to our benefit. So there. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so, so you want to talk about preaching? Yeah. So what do you actually we, preach on? I mean, this, I think, I think there's a lot of possibilities, of course, but I think one of the sort of points of ignorance that can be addressed is this, is the reality that the word of God is often met with hostility and cause and the consequences of preaching or confessing are suffering. So we should not think that's strange and we should not um, bear the blame on the person who fails in a human sense, yeah. right? Uh, and, and just to sort of name that and to recognize that and to own it mm-hmm. as, as part of how God is distilling our faith and bringing us to mm-hmm. a better confession and better praise through that. So do you, uh, so, secondly, yeah. So do you then say like, we've been, we have this great doctrine that is meant to embolden you to do things like the doctrine of election or the doctrine of the power of God's word and not to, uh, it, it's meant to help you engage, not disengage. And, and, and right. Meant to help you engage, not necessarily meant to help you win. Mm. Because there's, you know, there's certainly, right, we've seen this, you know, in in the Missouri Synod at various times that, you know, if we could just have the best technique, if we could find the (laughs) clever way of doing this, you know, we could make this successful. And we can't. I mean, but we should do it anyway. And we should not be, we shouldn't be naive about this. And we shouldn't crave success at all costs. Uh, but we also shouldn't be disillusioned so that we quit doing it because, well, we tried that and it didn't work. No, <laughs> keep keep trying it. It's still the right thing, right? And you know, you, you often—I mean, I've heard before, like at pastors' conference, you know, this—the definition of insanity is to keep doing something that doesn't work the same way yeah. or whatever. And uh, you know, in this case, that's not true. Uh, it's actually what's insane is to think that we could somehow make disciples of all nations by our own cleverness mm-hmm. or technique or you know special effect. Just let's just do what we've been given to do, and when it fails, let's shake the dust off our feet and keep doing it. So yeah, there's a lot to be said for that with your children as well, mm-hmm. right? This isn't just about evangelizing the world, right? Um, you know, I told my I told my children the truth about this, and they hate me for it. So now, how do I make them love me? Uh, well, you just got to keep telling them the truth. You can't make them love you, but mm-hmm. you can love them by telling them the truth, and you can just keep on doing it. And maybe it'll work, maybe it won't, but there's no other way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not going to work if you tell them lies. It might seem like it works on the outside, but it doesn't really work because you're going to destroy them and yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you have a, a second thing you were about to say? Well, the the just the joy of confession itself, that okay. we get to be part of this, I think is amazing. That whoever confesses me before men, right, I will confess him before my father in heaven. And the the sometimes I think we don't talk about this enough, how how great it is. Well, we feel it, we sense it, right, when we're in church. Like my people just and I think a lot of Christians do. They just love the Athanasian Creed. I mean, if we did it every week, I don't think they would. But once a year, it's fun, mm-hmm. and there's a kind of excitement about it. And you know, certain hymns have this effect as well. Yeah. Um, you know, some of these chorales that are quite difficult and long, and you know, it becomes a point of pride, a kind of feat of strength. You know, to confess this, to sing this, and I think there's a real goodness in this, and that we don't recognize enough. Uh, we often have this, I think, false idea that because they like singing, you know, God bless America or God bless our native land or whatever, but th- fine, they like that. That that's a, But that's a kind of shallow happiness to singing that. Mm-hmm. I don't mean it's inappropriate or has no place. It's nostalgia. But, you know, it's nostalgia. The music's very accessible. It's connected to lots of other stuff. Fine. But- the um, we we forget that actually right 
that that there's more joy in actually doing difficult things once they're accomplished and in the kind of competency of those things. Mm -hmm. And I think confessing Christ is one of those things, whether it's confessing the Athanasian Creed or singing, dear Christians, one and all rejoice, um, and, and the like, and to sort of foster this goodness of this and the joy that comes in this, that I am a confessor. I am saying back to God what he said to me with other people. We're saying the same thing. And there's this joy in conformity that is not defined by my own particular musical tastes or culture or epic in time or continent, but is actually belongs to the church universal. And it's a joy to be subordinated to the hat, right? To be part of this beautiful confession. Yeah. That was number two. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, 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 we've already talked quite a bit about the kind of training stuff, you know, exhortations to, to bear witness, to tell the truth, um, uh, uh, to confess. Uh, the consoling thing, I think, here is, you know, that just that God, Christ will confess you before the Father, and he has every hair on your head counted, and he's not going to fail, right? He's going to keep his promises to you, mm-hmm. and he's going to make this all worth it and more. Yeah. Anything in terms of, we've kind of touched upon it a little bit already, but on identifying what to fear. Yeah. I mean, I think it's mostly, I think we, I think we hit the big ones, at least, you know, the common ones for, for my people or Mm -hmm. what seems to be for my people pain. Um, You know, I think, yeah. So some of the rebuke might be that we're more afraid than we acknowledge, Yeah, but then recognizing what is it that really you know, recognizing the dangers in, in those things. Yeah, pain, family relationships, prestige in the community, right? Um, I don't know, physical physical things are more scary than we admit as well, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I heard one time that people are more afraid of going blind than dying. Isn't that interesting? Really? Yeah, so I th- I bet it's true. I don't know, but it sounds true to me. And I can imagine. I think there is there is a lot of unexpressed fears in us that we just try to not. We'll, we'll just ignore. I'm you know I'm afraid of you know I have relatives that 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 contracted Alzheimer's and that was awful to watch. And so I'm afraid of that, or I'm afraid of losing my sight, or I'm afraid of losing my driver's license, or I'm mm-hmm. afraid of. Cancer. I mean, there's a big one. Cancer, mm-hmm. right? Whatever. I'm afraid of the degradation that will come when I'm, you know, an old man and I have to wear diapers or I have to live in a nursing home. Mm-hmm. Or I'm afraid of, I mean, there's, there really is a lot more. We're, there's more fears in our lives than we acknowledge, I think, or actively think about, but they do drive us. Yeah. So do you think there's a part of that that is um, a fear of lacking independence or? independence that we think exists. Yeah. And so we don't want to push things to make it make it demonstrate that we actually aren't <laughs> as free as we think we are. Well, and we're we're using technology all the time mm-hmm. to to give an illusion of things that aren't real. So, you know, by extending our senses in various ways or extens- extending our powers or even extending our minds in some some aspect of them through technology, we get the false sense of having control and power that's that that aren't real, right? So you know, I can get on my motorcycle and go really fast, and it feels like I'm doing it, but right, I'm not, <laughs> right? It's a machine that's doing it. So <clears throat> I think that is one of the ways that we delude ourselves, mm-hmm. um, and I think a lot of that does have to do with autonomy or independence. This idea that I will. Right, I will be in control of my own fate and my own mm-hmm. whatever, which is in that's just pride, right? Yeah, that's Eve in the garden. Mm-hmm. And I mean, do you bring this up? Do you bring up the the failure of Adam to actually protect and lay down his life? Yeah, the cowardliness there. Yeah, yeah. do you, I mean, I don't. You, you mean I can't bring up all these things? I mean, it's just one. Why can't you? <laughs> The sermon is just a list. Yeah, here's stuff. Here's stuff to be afraid of. Here's stuff you suck at. Just a list of like forty things. 
It'd still be a long sermon, even if all you did was name them all. Yeah. But it could be power that could be a powerful sermon, actually. Yeah. If it was done well. I, I don't I'm not advocating it, but it's an interesting idea. It could be a maybe not maybe it wouldn't be maybe it wouldn't work very well in the real world as an actual sermon, but it could be a good mm. poem. Yeah. Just a list. I <clears throat> I find lists lists in the Bible and lists in Luther really interesting. Um you know, the, the vice lists that Paul has, as well as the virtue lists, even the fruits mm. of the Spirit. But then Luther Luther likes to li- give lists, too, that he ends with, etc. Usually, it's the means of grace. Yeah. And uh, I just find that, I don't know, there's something intriguing about it. And I think as a figure of speech, it's more, it's more nuanced than we realize. I think our, we jump to when we hear the word list even, or we see that a list is there, like the fruits of the Spirit, right? The first thing we do is count them, right? Mm-hmm. And then, oh, there's seven of them. And then that's a number of completion. So then we want to know what's one, what's two, what's three. Like it, That's the way we think of it. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's, it's, in that case, it's not the worst thing. However, I, I think actually, especially with the vice lists and in Luther, there is this different idea of it not being comprehensive, but rather as just kind of being expansive mm. to just sort of kind of overwhelm us. There's this, and there's this, and there's this, and there's this, and there's this. Yeah. And it isn't meant to be conclusive. It's it's meant to actually show. So with viceless, it's like, this is way worse than you think, you know, or even I think the qualifications for the office of the ministry in first Timothy yeah. uh, three and four or wherever that is. Um, I think that's right. That's a list, yeah. And I don't think it's it's not comprehensive. Yeah. <laughs> this is just like a sort of just starting to peel back the veneer and show you what's really required. Yeah, and, I actually think you know, the, so like I got the Titus one is not just is intended not just for men entering into the ministry. Yeah, but it's intended for all men that all men should be yeah in a position to be able to be called upon to enter the ministry. Right. Well, and he says in Timothy, you'd be an, or one of those, you'll, you'll be an example. Yeah. So, I mean, the pastors are meant to be examples. So, the, this the qualifications of the office are example. This is what right. Yeah. This is exactly right. You're not really asking of the pastors in some sense anything that aren't that isn't asked of all of, of all Christians. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So anyway, it's it's. I just find that interesting. So that would be. So it's kind of like a piling on. You mean like this is piling this on, is worse good. than you yes. think. Or, you know, when, <laughs> or better. Yeah, or better. But <laughs> I mean, it, it's kind of like, you know, someone says, uh, uh, um, well, you know, things are really bad. And, and, and you respond, oh, you know, bless your heart that you think it's that, that easy or something to that effect. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, I, that's a good phrase. It's absolutely a piling on. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that is just the, as a figure of speech, that's what a list is. Yeah. So, and we don't often think of a, a list as a figure of speech, or we don't. I, I don't hear people speak that way very often. So yeah. No, ever. we we think so. of it as like a, a checklist. Yeah. It, the, oh, these are the things, right? That's yeah. what I mean. It's like, right, okay, seven things. There we go. It's it's that's it. Mm-hmm. Got it. Not, yeah. Yeah. Uh, not addition one on top of the other. <laughs> right. Well, I think that's, well, that's that why really Luther's is an expansive way to think, and I think a better way to think that. These are all by addition, not or by sub- addition negatively. I don't want to say subtraction there, but <laughs> right. Um, uh, but they, as you said, expansive. They have a greater extent and um, comprehensiveness. Right. Yeah, that's that's a good way of thinking about it. Instead of well, just one thing after another, just one thing after another. So, what are like you going to focus liturgy? on? Oh, brother! I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, I, it's, I think it's, I think I'll probably end up with the confessing, something about confessing, mm-hmm. and encouraging them, exhorting them, and rebuking them in in that re- regard that they actually tell the truth to their. I like your idea of the starting with the family as a training ground, not only for their benefit but also as a training ground, and then encouraging them to expand it out. Yeah. Okay. It seems like the confess is the main fear not and confess are the main points textually in this section mm-hmm. and confess seems to be a little bit more closely tied to the 
to the commemoration of the Augsburg Confession. Yeah. And what you get in verse 22 before all of this is um, not whether you win or lose, but do you endure? Yeah. There you go. Do you have enough uh, in the tank to keep going? There you go. I always find that fascinating as kind of a way to wrap up how Paul, in his journeys, you know, what he encounters almost everywhere he goes, and he still keeps doing it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, yeah. the beatings and the shipwrecks and the, I mean, we, I think that Americans would have given up long ago. Right. It's somebody else's job. Oh, I know. I know. And then we'd be like, I did hear- we'd be like looking around, well, who's going to do this? <laughs> I know. I just heard a really convicting sermon on um, the office of the ministry preached by David Fleming, where, was this, am I getting the right? Anyway, I think it was him. I mean, I heard a sermon by him, but I can't remember if it was him or somebody else that had this line, but he was talking about how the... Elijah, you know, and his complaints and stuff, and then Elisha comes, and we look at this kind of stuff, and we look at these great heroes of the faith, and we we're tempted to say, well, you know, that was great. Like we like you at the beginning of this, right? Where's the Luther? Where's the Melanchthon to write this confession? Mm-hmm. And the point of this was, look, you're the one that's been placed into this office, yeah, and you're placed into this place and for this time, and there is no one else, and God did it on purpose, yeah. And no one's coming to, to help you. No one's coming to save coming you. To help you. <laughs> you know, and so I, it seems like, you know, we always have ideas about this seems like we could have used a Luther today, mm-hmm. right? We, we, the church could really use an articulate, bold voice with this kind of insight to address these many things. And, but where is it, right? Well, you, you are it. Yeah. I've you recent, are the father of your son. Yeah, you I've are been, the pastor of the congregation. I've been recently praying, you know, that, you know, when I see things that I initially wish that someone would address, <laughs> I kind of end up saying, well, let it begin with me. Like, l- let me remain and stay and say what needs to be said. Let me, Give me the courage to do that. Right. And I found that helpful. Um because it's a constant reminder that, as you said, I'm the one put here in this family, in this congregation, in this town, and I shouldn't yeah. look around to anyone else to do something when this is what right. God has actually called me to do. Yeah. And I mean, we can wish we were better at it, but we just got to do what we can. And you won't get better if you don't do anything. And you, right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Guaranteed. Guaranteed. Yeah. <laughs> So, okay, thank you. All right, have a good day.